But why don't we look together now at Romans chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 16, Romans 4, verse 16. I'm going to read from verse 16 down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4 is a defense of justification by faith. It's a defense of the way that we are reconciled to God. How are we going to be okay with Him? How are we welcomed in? Well, faith is what Paul's arguing for. That's how we're justified. That's how we get righteousness. And Romans 4 is all about a defense of the way this works. And he has made this defense in the first half of the chapter, and now he's going to focus in on a definition of what exactly does faith look like. And Abraham will be our example. He's going to be an illustration for us of what faith looks like in someone's life. When we say justification by faith, well, what do we mean by faith? Maybe more than that, why did God determine that faith would be how we are made right with him. That's the topic that we're going to read about starting in verse 16 of Romans 4 down to the end of the chapter. Let's look at this together. Paul says this in the 16th verse of Romans 4. That is why it depends, it, meaning our justification, our righteousness, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and for our justification. I wonder if you wouldn't take a moment and pray with me. Paul just told us that these things were written for us as well, and so I don't want to miss that. I don't want to yawn through such a, a promise, such a big statement. And so I wonder if you wouldn't take a moment and just pray with me, and then we'll learn together. Let's pray. God, what a gift Scripture is. What an invitation to hear from you, to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you for coming near. Thank you for speaking. And I ask that whatever else we have going on in life, whatever distractions or doubts or hurts, whatever aspirations, other delights, that we wouldn't miss your voice. God, would you please keep us from the temptation of treating these moments or this scripture as any other statement or any other words. I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in our faith, to grow strong in our faith the way that Abraham did, 
We want to understand these words so that we can rejoice more fully in being justified. We can see your glory in setting up a system where you have drawn us to yourself, where you've given Christ inheritance, not based on performance or ethnic identity, but by faith. So God, I want to be helpful. Please use my, my words to be an encouragement, to be clear. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why faith? That's the question that Paul's answering here at the end of Romans 4. Why faith? Why of all the ways that we could be justified, why justification by faith? After calling in these witnesses, after calling in a, a defense, a help for his statement that justification is by faith, he now wants to reflect on at the end of the chapter a simple statement, why is it by faith? Imagine all of the ways that God could have said, you can come into my presence now. All of the hoops that could have been erected. All of the hurdles to be jumped. All the things. Why faith? Why is that the lesson that was pressed forward through Abraham? Why is his legacy a legacy of faith, according to Romans chapter 4? In order to get at this, in order to consider the totality of the end of Romans 4, I'm really honing in and I'm thinking that I'm organizing this thought, these thoughts of Paul, based around verse 21. I just read it. But I think 21 really sums up and is going to break down this text for us. Verse 21 is straightforward. This is what he says justification looks like. This is what Abraham got as righteousness, this verse. He was fully convinced, and there we're going to get this idea of a definition of faith. What does faith look like? And I take that from this phrase, fully convinced, that what? That God was able to do. So, as a second aspect, today we're going to talk about faith. What does it look like to be fully convinced? Second, what does it mean that God is able? What is the object of our faith? There is an object here. He's fully convinced that's something, and that is that God was able. And then finally, to do what he had promised. And what Paul wants to press home, what is to consider is, what is the promise of God? What has he actually promised to those who trust him? What was he able to do? And what is he still able to do for us? And it'll be these three, these three things. What is faith? What does it mean to be fully convinced? Second, what is the object of our faith? What does it mean that God was able? And then finally, what is it that he's promising? And I want to think about the end of Romans 4 in that way, really as a, a kind of a pulling out, a flowering of just the 21st verse of Romans chapter 4. So let's look at this together. It should be obvious, and I don't need to defend, I think, the statement that faith is the, the focus of this particular chapter. Faith is, it shows up a ton of times. Chapter 4 is ending by focusing on Abraham's faith, and because this was not written just for him and for us also, ours, as we follow in his footsteps. Let me just point out at the end of Romans 4 all the places where Paul's trying to get it into our heads that what we believe, what we trust, what we live by is what God is concerned with. This is what he says in verse 16. It says that is why it depends on faith. And then later, showing that it would be given to those who share the faith of Abraham. Twice, faith in verse 16. Verse 17, this was the statement that was given to Abraham in the presence of the God in whom he believed. 
It wasn't just any old God, it was the God in whom he believed. So faith twice in verse 16, pointing out that Abraham believed in this God in verse 17. Verse 18 shows us the challenge that he had in holding on to his faith. It says, in hope he believed against hope. What an amazing statement. We're going to get at this later when we talk about what God was able to do. In hope he believed against hope. Another statement of what faith might look like. Verse 19, Abraham's faith is in view again. He tells us that he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he looked around and considered his circumstances. He did not weaken in faith. His faith is in view. Verse 20, it tells us that Abraham did not let unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. No unbelief made him waver. He grew strong in his faith. Then we come to 21. He was fully convinced. There's another statement. It's as though Paul's trying to pull in every synonym as possible. He went to Microsoft Word. He right-clicked. Trying to show us, well, what does faith look like? How can I describe this in a million ways in Abraham's life? Verse 21, he was fully convinced. We're not done yet. Finally, then again in verse 22, it tells us in verse 22 that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was his faith, nothing else about his life, but his faith, what he clung to. And then finally, it tells us that these promises, this God who is able, he is for those who also believe. That this is ours also when we believe in him. And so I would want to, as we consider this and look, we, we can't miss it. This is the theme of the end of Romans chapter 4. What does it mean to be a person like Abraham and to have faith like him? Now, here's a couple of misconceptions. Something that may have brought some guilt in your life at different times. Faith does not mean perfect, complete, and total doubtlessness. It does not mean that you are the kind of person who does not think that's what you'd have to be to be a person who has no doubt. And I actually think that it's interesting that Paul is so confident about Abraham's faith. More than that, I think it's amazing and it's merciful and it's hopeful that God considers Abraham to be the beacon of faith. Because those of you who know his story well, you might read this and you say to yourself, really? Abraham's faith? I'm not going to go and read all of it, but let me rehearse a little bit of Abraham's story. Not once, but multiple times, Abraham left a circumstance and situation that he was in because he wasn't sure that they would survive. Despite God saying, I'm going to give you this land, he wasn't sure and he left. Numerous times, Abraham expressed, definitely Sarah expressed, some sort of complaint or at least an open prayer or concern that God may be too slow to bring about what he had promised. How can I be a father of many nations, Abraham might have said, if I don't have a single child? And this wasn't just a musing. It wasn't just an internal musing. This kind of conversation led Abraham and Sarah, Sarah mainly, to concoct a plan where Abraham would be with Hagar to produce the thing that God had promised of his own volition. Now this doesn't seem like if we were going to concoct and come up with a perfect religious picture of faith, Abraham isn't cutting it so far. So, 
as he continued on, I'll bring up just a few more instances. I don't mean to beat a dead horse here. Remember all the times that Abraham apparently had so much faith that he went into what he considered to be difficult or potentially uh, areas of opposition, and he told Sarah, here's the thing, lie to them and tell them you're my sister. Man of faith. So the question becomes, what and how is Abraham a model of faith if he had all these singular instances where his faith was not all that exemplary? Well, here's a couple things I think that we're learning about faith, and that is, is that faith is taken in totality of a trajectory of life, a Godwardness over time, not judged based on the worst of individual moments. I think that's the way that God is, is describing this. Because no human being is capable of perfect faith, when we say justification is by faith, God doesn't look and say, let me judge the nature of your faith. I'm going to weigh it. I'm going I'm to, like you're checking the purity of gold. It is not that because you can't exchange, you can't give God a perfect life of righteousness in all of your works, then now you have to give an effort to give perfect faith to him or he's going to reject you. Abraham did not have perfect faith and yet he was the man of faith. This means that overall what God is looking for is a consistent repentance that looks like faith, a consistent coming back. Believe it, it says in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. I think that's recognizing that sometimes Abraham was tempted to unbelief. You can be and will be a faithful person who sometimes doubt. Have you been there yet? Have you faced the fullness, the full dark idea of doubt? Well, there's hope for you. Because people like Abraham are the model of faith and God says, here's the thing, he kept coming back. None of those, here's the, here's the reality of Abraham's life, none of the difficulty of his circumstances, some of which were very suffering, very much suffering, none of his circumstances, none of what he couldn't see, none of his blindness, none of his stumbles, none of his doubts, none of the moments of his darkness changed his ultimate course where he kept getting up and kept repenting and saying, no, I remember what God has promised and I'm walking with and toward him. Faith is a posture of heart over time given by the grace of God, and the, the basis or the idea of our faith is not that we have perfected it to the point that we never think nor doubt. No unbelief made him waver. In other words, what Abraham did when doubts came is he doubted his doubts. This is a massive concept for our world today. There are lots and lots of people going through many things, and they all call it deconstruction or whatever they call it, and the amazing thing is, is that they are fine with saying for decades and decades and decades, they were completely motivated by some false premise. In other words, they have now come to the conclusion that what they thought back then must have been faulty, but there's no way they could be thinking faultily now. That in the last two months, they are able to see perfectly clearly. And what I would invite people to say is, no, doubts are going to come, but you should doubt your doubts in the same way that you want to wrestle with the things that you don't see. Abraham was not an unthinking, Pollyannish, perfect example of never, ever, ever stepping away from God. He was a real man who had suffering in life, who confronted doubts in his life, but consistently came back and said, no, 
I'm not going to waver despite the temptation that's coming. I'm not going to waver. I'm walking. I've set my course. I know who God is, and I'm going. Faith is not credulity. Faith is not a consistent or persistent, naive outlook on life. Can you imagine someone interacting with Abraham and asking about his faith? They knew about the promise. You know, maybe Abraham was bold enough at a, at a dinner party one time to be like, you wouldn't have believed the experience I had with God. He showed me the seashores. He showed me the, the sky. He said I was going to be a father of many nations. Ten years later, you show up at the next dinner party. Abraham, where are those kids? What's going on with them? Abraham was not the kind of person who exhibited faith in that moment as someone who didn't think. Sometimes faith, people think, means you don't reason. I love verse 19. <laughs> Sorry, I gave the sip. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 4. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. First of all, wow, Paul, could you be meaner? As good as dead, respect the elderly. But he said, it was as good as dead. Paul recognizes what Abraham recognized, and that is that the situation didn't look good. He wasn't an unthinking person. He was honest. Abraham probably looked around at the dinner party and said, guys, I know it doesn't look good. I don't know. I think about these things too. Pray with me. Let's trust God together. I, I don't know. I don't see it. You don't have to have a level of naive or persistent, dogged lying. In other words, let me just say it that as, as, as honestly as that. Faith doesn't mean lying about your circumstances. Sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you don't know. You still think. You consider. Abraham considered his own body. He realized how difficult the situation was. He was long past the age of reproduction or what it seemed to him. Maybe I could say it as delicately as this. His love life had slowed. I heard a, a friend this week talking about a Bible study that he had with an 80-year-old guy that was in it. And they were reading through the story of Abraham. And he looked up from the text and he, he looked at him and he said, that's you. <laughs> Are you just about ready? Take on dadhood again now? So when we ask the question, what is faith? What does it mean to follow in Abraham's footsteps? I just want to relieve you of the guilt or the shame of the doubts that you may have. I want to relieve you or tell you that it's okay to be honest about your circumstances. You do not have to check into the faith hotel and leave behind reason and thinking behind. You're going to consider your circumstances. Sometimes what, faith, what makes faith all the stronger is that you have plumbed the depth of your circumstances. You've been honest about them. You've dealt with and faced your doubts, but you don't let them make you waver. You have a confidence to say, I'm experiencing all of this. There's all the things that I don't see, but I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to walk because I know what God has said and I know who he is. And even when I can't see, I'm walking. That's what faith looks like in Abraham's life. So when Paul wants to introduce him as the father of faith, the person we should follow in his footsteps, let's not gloss over what he was really like. It is the totality of his life that screams in verse 21, he was fully convinced. 
And he was not a man who had experienced nothing or no suffering or no difficulty. He wasn't fully convinced, sort of like Satan's complaint against Job. Well, yeah, sure, Job's fine, but you just keep protecting him. He's lived a life with no problems. Do you feel the weight of this in verse 21? He was fully convinced. In other words, he'd been tested, he'd been dragged through it, he'd seen his circumstances, he had experienced doubt, he faced it all, he kept getting back up, and he was walking in a Godward direction. That's the kind of faith that God desires and is pleased by. So what is faith? It is a dogged commitment to keep on going. It is a trajectory of life that is Godward in nature, that does not disregard or ignore circumstances, but places them firmly under the promise of God. All right, I have to move forward. We've only gotten through two words of verse 21. So if it's not, this is where the logic goes, if it's not the perfection of your faith that gives you righteousness, if none of us can give God a perfect faith in the same way that you can't give him a perfect record of lust or greed or anger or whatever it is, then what is it that makes faith so powerful? Well, faith is so powerful because of the object of our faith. The source of strength is in what we're believing in. And in this case, we are placing our trust, our faith, in the most strong, able, capable place in the universe. What did Abraham ultimately believe? He believed that God was able, a God who could do the impossible, a God who knew full well the circumstances and in many times orchestrated them, but was going to be able to work straight through it. What is God able to do? Well, he is able to do nothing less than bring life from death. There's a theme of resurrection here. It's as as stark as this. He doesn't believe that God is able to slightly improve things around him. He doesn't believe that God would be a good editor of life. Oh boy, you really rearranged the sentences there. I'm so glad I have a copy editor like you. No, it is death and then God brings life. Not slight improvements, but complete and utter change from no hope to hope. And where do we see that? What is he fully convinced that God is able to do? Well, he is a God who can bring life from death. Here's a few circumstances, here's a few instances at the end of Romans 4 where he brings this up. Abraham was to be a father of many nations, and despite the fact that he his own body was considered as good as dead, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb was obvious in front of him, and one good translation for barrenness there is when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, he was believing in a God. Verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's one of the best phrases to describe what God is like. He calls into being things that do not exist. That's what it means for him to be creator, the preexistent one, the source of all things. Many can form, but none but God can summon, can call forth from nothing. We have been given creative license to rearrange, but God is the one who from nothing can bring something. No unbelief made him waver concerning this problem that God is one, or this promise that God is one who can bring life from death. There's an example in Abraham's life at least twice. First, Abraham looks and says, I'm supposed to be a father of many nations physically, but here I am, good as dead, here my wife is, dead womb, but I believe that God is able, and ultimately he is able, and God brings 
Isaac. More than that, though, the same themes press forward in Abraham's life, not just once, the fact they had no children and he brought children, but then God seems to want to press this further. He wants to show Abraham what he's really like, the depth of his ability. So he directs Abraham and says, here's what I want you to do with Isaac. I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him. And what does the scripture say concerning Abraham's posture in this moment? How is it possible that Abraham might have been at the place where he'd say, I could sacrifice my son? Well, reflecting on this, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Hebrews 11, it's the faith chapter. This is what Hebrews 11 says, starting in verse 17 of that experience. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. And what did he consider? It says he considered that God was able. God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith was placed in a God who could bring life from death. And so we follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith in not just the fact that our faith is not perfect, like Abraham's faith was not perfect, but in order for us to be in his footsteps, here's what we must believe. You must believe that God can bring life from death. You must believe that God is able to bring about forgiveness and redemption and healing from your sin. You must believe that in the face of the consequences of your sin, the wages of sin being death, that God can bring life. You must believe that in Jesus Christ, God was demonstrating a principle, a principle that even through death, God can bring life. In fact, without death, he's not able to bring the kind of life that is promised to us. It is, in fact, the very moment of the death of Christ that hope springs. Why can our faith be effective? Not because it's perfect, but our faith can be effective because we see the ability of God, a God who can do all things, a God for whom something as piddling and small as death is nothing. That's why the end of Romans 4 says it's for ours also. This is for our sake. Verse 24 this statement concerning faith was for our sake, and it will be counted to us who believe in him. And what are we believing in? We're believing in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Faith is effective in so much as it believes a God who can resurrect, who can pull life from death. This is the pattern we follow in Abraham's footsteps not only in his not perfect faith, but his dogged faith. And we follow in Abraham's footsteps because Abraham again and again, in an example, had to face this fact. Here's death. Is God able to bring life? Yes. And Isaac comes. Offer Isaac. Well, here's the idea or the possibility of death. Can God bring resurrection from the dead? Yes. And now you and I are faced with this question we will face death. All around us, every person you see, meet, dream with, laugh with, play frisbee with, will face death. What was God doing in the cross? Is he undoing death? Is it possible that Jesus is the firstborn, the first fruits of a new thing that God has done in the world? 
Can God deliver you from death? If the gospel doesn't answer the biggest problem we all face, then it is less than promised. If the gospel does not deliver us from the problem of death itself, it is false advertising. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who see a God who is able and has again and again. If God can call forth a universe into existence from nothing, if he's that kind of God. If God can say alive to a dead and barren womb, if God could resurrect and present an offering in lieu of a child to be sacrificed, if God would not withhold his very son and subject him to the wages of sin being death, and if God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised that son from the dead and overcame the grave, then we have placed our faith in a powerful place. We have hope. Christianity is not about faith for a slightly better life. Christianity is not about moral improvement. Christianity is nothing less than God speaking into existence and saying, I see your circumstances, I know how hopeless it is, I know how terrible it is, but you can face death, life will come. And this is, I believe, one of the reasons why Justification by faith is so wonderful because it places us in a position where the only hope is that God is able. Christians are those who, despite anything that we experience or see, we walk around with a dogged commitment saying to anyone who will listen, but God, but God is able. He can. So, because God is able, what will he do? He will bless. It says that Abraham believed that God was able to do what he had promised. The final thing to consider is that what is it that God is promising? Well, he promised in Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. This idea of blessing, joy, bliss, life. Genesis chapter 12, this is the calling of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, the promise of God is that through Abraham he was doing something for everyone everywhere. The reason that justification is by faith is because for the promise of righteousness, for the promise of justification to be for Jewish people only is too small. I imagine God before the foundation of the world having a council about how to save those who are, who are lost in sin. And all these plans are coming forward. What if it's by ethnic whatever? And God's like, nah, it's too narrow, it's too small. What if it's by those who could perform? Oh gosh, no, have you seen humans? It's too small. There's so few. What if it's by giving charitably and generosity? But what about the poor? I just don't... I just don't know. What if it's by connections and status if you, if you get along really well? I don't know. Some people just aren't very good at that, and they exclude a lot. And then finally, the plan of God coming firmly, 
No, no, here's the thing. It's got to be justification by faith because faith glorifies me most. It highlights my ability, not their inability. It's got to be by faith because then and only then will it be open to all. This is what Paul says. It has to be by faith because that is the only way that we're leveled at the cross. It has to be by faith because God's heartbeat, his promise is that he's going to bless all the families of the earth. No one can be left out. Justification by faith is the only broad enough, the only wide enough, the only invitation strong enough to meet his promise. If it was by any other means, then his promise would be null and void. But it turns out that justification by faith is the way that we are saved because it is the most God-honoring, the most Christ-exalting, and ultimately it is the widest invitation possible. Can you look? Can you open your hands? Can you believe? Can you say that despite my suffering and my circumstances, I will walk? Then if so, you will be granted a righteousness perfection that gives you a spot not only in the courtroom but a spot of not guilty an invitation to the family a place of everlasting and eternal belonging you will be quite literally in the line of abraham a part of his family in line for blessing that paul says is why any attempt to make justification by another means is an exclusionary exercise in failure. Those of us who are Christians hold to faith in a God who is able to keep his promises. Let's pray. God, thank you for keeping your promise. I am not Jewish by birth. I am not perfect in my works or thoughts. I'm not impressive, smart enough, naturally spiritual enough. I couldn't give enough. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful that what you've asked of me is to receive, to look, and to believe. And so, God, I ask that we would glory not in ourselves, I pray that you would release us from the guilt of our imperfect faith and that we would glorify you in your ability and in your promises and that that's what would grow our faith. Help us, even today as we've sung, we're declaring your promises. Help us to be more informed by who you are, your ability and what you've promised than by our circumstances. And I ask that you'd give us the good gift of strengthened faith. We don't want to live with doubts. We don't want to waver because of our circumstances. So God, help us. Help us to see that you're able. Help us to see you as a promise-keeping God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.